You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Robbie Samuels hosts the On the Schmooze podcast. Robbie, tell listeners what to expect from the show. Since 2015, I've interviewed entrepreneurs who overcame challenges to achieve success in their field or industry. Tune in to On the Schmooze to listen as I ask deep questions to elicit untold stories about leadership and networking. And where can people subscribe? Find the show at ontheschmooze.com or on marketingpodcast.net or just search for it wherever you get your podcasts. You heard them. Go subscribe. Welcome to The Making of a Marketer, the podcast that takes you around the world of marketing, one topic at a time. Hosted by digital marketing consultants, Jess Nickerson and Andy Pondillo. We welcome you to join the conversation. Stream us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts. Now here are your hosts, Jess and Andy. We are back here. It is a Thursday, Jess and Andy, and... Happy to be with you a little bit before Super Bowl Sunday. So, Jess, we did an episode on this last year, and maybe we do some follow-up on kind of our thoughts on the ads, all that good stuff. So how are you going into this this year? Are you, are you focused on the ads again? You know, what kind of what's your your game plan for Super Bowl Sunday? I'm definitely focused on the ads always. Uh, now I'm a little more intrigued by the relationship with, uh Kelsey am I saying this right yes Travis Kelsey Travis Kelsey and Taylor Swift because you know we talked about this at the start of the season when she started coming to the games and talking about how the NFL can capitalize on her appearance and how Swifties are now starting to be exposed to the NFL and we've seen throughout the entire season the numbers are going up and up with every game that she's attending so yes I, I'm, I'm a, a little bit uh, curious about how this is going to play out I was talking to my fiance Kristen about this earlier today actually and I was like what will be a perfect post-Super Bowl guest and I was thinking along the lines of the social media team manager or marketing manager for Taylor Swift and she was like good luck getting that person I was like I know right I'm gonna hit up the end mail right now but what I was thinking was for her success how she's combined with NFL done all the things she's doing the era's tour whatever her marketing team is getting paid right now it's not enough like they should just put a blank and I put a number in there and be like, that's what we need, because I haven't seen an artist get to these heights probably in my lifetime. And with the Grammys, 
this past weekend yep. didn't she announce like something happened on social where she yes. announced her album and it you know she broke the internet yes she announced the new album i'm not a swifty so i don't know all the details but she did announce the new album so i know that's coming tied in the super bowl you know we're looking at probably another record growth pattern for her on spotify and all the channels but we do have an important conversation today with someone who is doing a lot of thought leadership herself and blowing up on the LinkedIn sphere. Uh, Amber Naslin, she's a senior manager of marketing solutions at LinkedIn. And to double, she's someone, like we said, that's doing really, really well on her personal feed, motivating marketers and professionals alike with some of her posts. So what we're talking about today is, you know, talking a lot about both her career journey and some of her strategy that she uses as a thought leader on the platform. So Amber, we're extremely, extremely excited to have you today and ready to kick off another fantastic conversation. Amazing. I'm so excited to be with you guys. Um, I'm mostly just a professional loudmouth, but I appreciate all the nice things that you said. Well, <laughs> I'll keep that in my back pocket. So there is power to that, Amber, because, you know, we talk about thought leadership all the time and we say, hey, be natural, like be you. So, you know, you know that, hey, you want to, you know, be allowed now on social media. That's exactly the way to be, but doing it in the right way. And it's very creative, your posts. And I want to say, as we work through our posts today or your post today, I want to highlight a few that have been very impactful to me. Um, and Jess and I, as we read them, because there are times where, you know, you just start scrolling through the feed and there's like this pick me up and you've been exceptional at doing it. So we first want to start off with the question we ask everybody and we talk about creativity, but when you're stuck with creativity. So working in our marketing sphere, obviously there are times where we're, you know, going hard and we're making big plays and other times where we can get stuck. So what's your method to the madness, both in your day-to-day -day marketing and also your day-to-day -day posting strategy when you're stuck? What's funny is that people are always a little bit either shocked, disappointed, or both that I don't have some carefully crafted content calendar that I follow. Like all the things I tell brands to do are the antithesis of the things that I do personally. <laughs> I'm very much, I don't know if you're like familiar with the terminology in the writing world, but people call it an outliner or a pantser. Like, are you a person who creates outlines of your work and you follow that to the letter? Or do you like write by the seat of your pants? And I am a pantser when it comes to my, my stuff, usually that I post online. Um, and if I get stuck in a creative rut, I have two, well, I have two things that I do kind of on a routine basis. One is I change up my environment. So I've been working more or less remotely or in a hybrid fashion for over 15 years. So for me, it's about changing my stimulus. So sometimes I get a little bit burned out in my home environment. So I'll go to my favorite coffee shop, um, or I'll go to the local tavern where I know everybody and I hang out and, you know, get myself a beverage and sit at the bar and do some some writing and working. So for me, my environment makes a big difference in terms of my creativity. Um, this is not revolutionary, but I walk a lot. I get outside and put my walking shoes on. So much happens in my brain when I'm moving that allows me to kind of think through things. And I'm a devotee of voice notes when I'm walking. So I'll talk, to, I'll talk randomly in my phone about the ideas that pop to mind for me. 
Um, and I also tend to write and think in batches. So I will let myself write. If I'm in a creative space, I'll let myself write a ton or come up with a bunch of posts in aggregate. And then I'll either schedule those out or keep them in an archive somewhere that I can fish for. Um, I'll also like half write an article. So I'll be like, I think I want to write something about this. And then I'll blather out a few very messy chunks. And I'll come back to that later when I'm lacking some inspiration and try to get inspired by some of my like my half baked posts and flesh them out a little bit more. I love that, especially from a content creator standpoint. So, you know, Amber, something that I've tried to do in my past working with social media managers is there was this era. We had talk about the eras tour. Like I'm so like my style is I come from social media OG era of when we threw darts at the wall and saw what stuck. Jess always laughs at me, but how we started doing video content was basically we all shot the Blair Witch Project on flip cameras and saw what would go viral. So I still like that a little bit where ideas come at different points. You might be in different settings when you have something, jot it down. It could be something big later on. Where I think now that, you know, in this world we've gotten so technical with, you know, scheduling platforms, content calendars, all these things, I like utilizing them still, but I do feel there has to be like some kind of like mix. So I find it important though, that we speak to this, that that's your strategy to mix it up and come up with these ideas. Because I do feel like we have a lot of professionals that feel like that's not the way it's supposed to be done because it's not the way it's being taught. So it's important for leaders like yourself to speak to it. So I genuinely like that answer of just kind of mixing it up and finding those ideas as you go. And yeah. Oh, sorry, go ahead, go ahead, Jess. Uh, just to double down on that, I love that Amber is saying, if you've got the if you've got the creative flow, like if you've got the energy, like continue going. Because sometimes I think we're taught like to ideate within certain constraints, which I mean, that's something that I teach and it's very impactful, but we can say, hey, get out as much as you can within X amount of time. And we don't, necessarily think of the times when it you're really flowing you've got the energy well, like why not just keep going the reality is in a, in a life where i am a single parent of a teenager who has a lot going on i have a professional day job that takes a lot of my time and attention i have to tuck that in wherever i can and sometimes the inspiration or the motivation to do things comes at really wild and weird times. Sometimes it's on the weekend, sometimes it's late at night, sometimes it's early in the morning. I personally can't afford to just be like, here's my hour during the middle of the day because sometimes I'll just sit and stare at my computer and be like, nothing's coming. So I've got to capitalize on the moments where the juice is there and use that momentum to create because I may not get another shot at it sometimes for days. So my creation timeline is very sporadic and I cannot count on it to be regular or structured in any way because my brain is also not regular and structured. So none of that like really high structured environments don't work for me. And I just learned that over years and years of, of content creation, you just kind of have to vibe with, with what works for you. And that goes for formats too. Like some people were insistent that you had to be doing video content and I loathe doing video content and I've played with it. It just doesn't ring as authentic for me. So I, 
index on the kinds of content that that work for me. And that for me happens to be written and text-based content. So you kind of got to do what works for you rather than trying to force a round peg into a square hole. So let's talk about that, finding your voice, Amber. So 30,000 followers. First, congratulations on that. That's a super big number. Uh, I hit the 2K marker and I am so proud, Jess. I had to send you a screenshot over the weekend that I got the top voice for content marketing from the collaborative articles. I, I screenshotted that. I'm going to print it out, put it on my wall. But Amber, like, not only the followers, though, your content is popping. Like, there's dozens, hundreds of comments, likes, shares on everything you post right now. So tell us, how did you find that voice to where you've become such a, you know, energizer amongst your community? Wow. Um, it's a big question. And I, I, again, I feel like my answer seems so overly simplistic and I'm not trying to be like falsely modest, but I have never tried to amass a following. Like my goal, whenever I, when I started back, you referenced the social media OG, like I was on Twitter in the very first wave when it was like out in uh, at South by Southwest. I too had a flip camera, like I, all these things that we experimented with, my goal was never to build an audience. And nowadays so many people talk about content as if the goal is to just amass this like group of eyeballs. And that's never been my aim. Um, I came from, believe it or not, like a nonprofit background where so much of what we did was centered around nurturing community and belonging and connection. And that's always been at the root of my content creation and online presence stuff. And I think that like, there's so much friction in me that rebels against. And anytime I try to be more, what's the word I'm looking for? Like more mechanical about it. I'm like, okay, I'm going to build my platform. I fail miserably because it doesn't come naturally to me. So I've always indexed on whether I have one person I'm talking to or a thousand or a million I'm trying to genuinely make a connection over this digital space with people. And I believe that the only way you do that is by being a legitimately real, raw, messy, occasionally controversial human being with thoughts and opinions and emotions and all of the stuff that comes with it. So if you read the stuff that I post, it's all over the map. I talk about my personal experiences, my professional experiences. Sometimes it's meant to be very like, uplifting and encouraging. Sometimes I talk about really hard and messy things. That's all just very authentic to me. So I treat it as if I'm sitting down and having a conversation with people um, and people that I've admired over the years who write really well or genuinely have great online presence, talk a lot about like picking a person and writing for that person in your mind. Um, and I think a lot about just trying to make connections with the few people who share that space with me, whether it's emotionally or professionally or cognitively or whatever it happens to be. And it works for me. Um, I, I like, I don't know how repeatable that is or how easy it is to teach other people, but that's been at the root of everything that I've done. And I rarely look at my stats, like follower number. I don't care about any of that kind of stuff. I, I care about, are people having a dialogue with me? Are they jumping into the comments? Are they connecting with me? Are those conversations continuing beyond that post? And am I making good relationships with people that will outlast the content on the internet? Like that's the stuff I care about. 
I love it. You you are such an empathizer and it and you're so true. And I think it just it just it just comes through so clearly with everything you write. And I, I feel like you're the anti-influencer, which is something we all need right now. And I love that. I'm gonna totally steal that and like get myself a t-shirt that says the anti-influencer now because I'm I'm into that. <laughs> yeah, it's it's absolutely fantastic because I think you like you really done what social media was intended to do in building that community, connecting with people, you know, deepening the connection. And I, I just think when uh, we're focusing more on, you know, building, building the followers, like how are they engaging? Like how many likes and clicks am I getting? How am I going to make money off of this? Uh, that can get cloudy and, uh, it's just fantastic what you're doing. Well, I've long said that like the thing is that people tend to overweight, you know, your audience size, your follower count, your clicks, shares, likes, whatever that happens to be. To me, that's always been the result, not the goal. Meaning that like that's the after effect. If you do a good job of connecting with people on a micro scale, the macro results come, but you got to be patient enough to want that to happen. And what drives me nuts these days is this this over-indexing on growth hacking or you know trying to like build audiences at all costs and finding all manner of like kind of weird sideways nefarious tactics for getting that done. But I I I want to go back and be like, to what end? What are you trying to why are you doing this? Like what do you need two million people for? Is it just because you're trying to sell your course or monetize your platform? And look, as a marketer, I understand the importance of reach and audience and, and all of those things. But as an individual content creator, I think it's so much more important for my long-term credibility to be real about who I am and what I stand for and let the audience come that is the right fit for me versus just trying to amass, I, I jokingly call it like amassing eyeballs like baseball cards. Like I'm not just trying to collect people. I'm trying to actually build a community. And that means by default that sometimes my community is going to be smaller because it's an, I'm not for everybody and I'm okay with that. That's a very interesting topic because I used to work with a lot of YouTube influencers in a past life, also a nonprofit life, but also it was a nonprofit blended with tourism. We had a lot of YouTube influencers and I'm kind of like, kind of just pick their brain. It was always fascinating to me. And the one thing that stuck out to me is a lot of them knew it was a short game. They're like, hey, like I'm on top right now. I'm a macro influencer. I know I've got the audience, but these things come and go. And Amber, you're really talking about a macro strategy. And I think it leads into a post you were talking about um, a little bit, and that's engagement pods. So where people kind of see that there's a tactic that's working, a voice that's working, and they're trying to reverse engineer it to what you're saying, kind of like growth hacking. So something that like is a big one right now, I'm sure if you go on LinkedIn and scroll through your feed, there's going to be AI, AI, AI all over the place. Like it's just a hot topic. It's, you know, obviously relevant to a lot of different industries, but I feel like I also see a lot of people kind of like force engineering different things into their talk track and it's not necessarily their community. So I definitely would love to just hear you kind of elaborate on that and kind of maybe as you started to figure out who that one-to-one -one voice is for you, 
did it take some testing or were you always just, hey, I'm putting out my natural content and I know this is what, you know, my audience wants. And again, um, you know, I almost have to reverse engineer the way I ask the questions because I would normally ask like, well, how do you get engagement on this? Or like, how do you, you know, build this? But what you're talking about are these long lasting relationships, which again, I love because I think your strategy becomes a lot more sustainable, but just curious, like how you figured out what that voice, you know, was and, you know, that engagement pods comment kind of, you know, what that's all about. Yeah, I'll start there and then go backwards from where you you were asking, because to me, engagement pods for the uninitiated is the idea that you create content online and you make this like pact with a handful of people or sometimes a large group of people um, in the back channel. And you say, OK, every time I post a post, I'm going to send the link to you and you're going to agree that you're going to go to that post and you're going to like it and you're going to leave a comment because that's what the algorithm, quote unquote, wants. So we're gonna help each other's posts get traction and like we're gonna aim for virality by gaming the system to some degree and making sure that we're all piling on those posts. I have several problems with that approach, um, but namely because it's because you're actually trying to create for the algorithm instead of for the human beings that are on the other side of that algorithm. And I know that sounds very Pollyanna, but it just rings so hollow to me to be like, hey, kind of, it's one thing if like I have friends in the industry that are, that we always kind of engage with each other's posts because we genuinely want to be part of the conversations the other person is starting. But if you read a lot of the posts that the engagement pods are really active on, all of the comments are super formulaic. They're really just to check a box. It's all very performative. And it bothers me because it just is like, serving the beast instead of serving the community. And I, that has just never been what I'm here for. So I, it's not a kind of thing that I, some people are probably going to get super mad at me because they're going to be like, well, that's what works for me. I, great. If that works for you, like do you, but the kind of legacy that I want to leave with the content that I've created online long after the dust, like I'm dust and bones and somebody else is like taking on the mantle or the internet goes away for all I know. Um, I can look myself in the mirror at night and go, the, the stuff that happened with the content that I created, whether it was little or big, was with real people on the other side of it and real conversations. And I have so many times over reaped the rewards of that through whether it's friendships, professional connections. I mean, I got my job on LinkedIn because of a connection through LinkedIn because of my content on LinkedIn. It's like very, very meta. Um, but those are the rewards that I've gotten over the years that justify the approach that I've taken and made me believe that that's the right one for me. You know, when we're talking about engagement pods where this went super mainstream too, if we take it back a few years, I think people have been using this strategy that you describe, Amber, where you kind of, everybody posts the same thing, they engage generic comments, but we saw it become, I guess what some people consider successful, it just depends what success is. But I always think of fire festival when I think of this because it was the ultimate engagement pod strategy that literally the entire internet became fire festival for a few hours because they had um, it was Kylie Jenner uh, posting about it, a lot of celebrities, influencers, and then they had the big orange square tickets sold out. Billy McFarland's doing Firefest too. We want him on the podcast to explain his marketing techniques, but that's for another day. But 
That's what I always think about, though, when I think of that strategy, because it is taught, I feel like, a little bit at conferences, and there's some experts that kind of teach this strategy, you know, the kind of the ideas, it's bang for your buck, you don't have to run as many paid ads, you can kind of pull this all together to create some sort of action. But the I think the thing we have to remember here is that they're trying to create some sort of business action. If you're looking to get on this platform and do something that's gratifying to you and you're a macro, I feel like it has to come off as natural. And that's where I feel like you're really getting at here and why your strategy will last a lot longer beyond kind of that that short stint that we see a lot of influencers have. And listen, I, I understand the uh, the drive to commercialize something at scale. For example, if you're the kind of person who your your business is you've created some courses and you need to sell that course. And in order to sell that course, you need like millions and millions of eyeballs to make the like the funnel trickle down enough to generate whatever MRR or AR you're looking for. I, I get all that. I'm in a slightly different place. So maybe I have the luxury of doing it differently. Um, but I also would say that even in the commercial world of the customers that I work with, we talk a lot about, for example, employee advocacy programs and brands want their employees to actively post about the brand or share news that the brand is posting on their company page. And what you end up with is sort of like this watered down, templatized, everybody's kind of copy pasta, the same thing. And it, it removes the authenticity and it has that hollow ring to it where you're like, nobody's posting this because they actually want to. They're posting it because they've been told to. And that just hits different for me. And it's not the aftertaste that I want to personally leave with my community. And I think if it works for some people um, and it's meeting their commercial aims, all the more power to them, as long as they're not actively harming somebody, I can't you know criticize someone for doing it differently than I do. Um, but when it comes to my personal content creation philosophy, it doesn't fit in. And so it's not something I'll ever do. And as a result, that's probably means that my audience and reach will forever stay smaller. And I'm okay with that. And framing it up as your philosophy, Jess, because I know that's something that you're big on in your workshopping is kind of figuring out like who you are and like what your one-to-one -one conversation is. And that allows you to branch off what a feasible content strategy could be. Mm -hmm. Yes. Amber has enlightened me because I did not know about these tactics until I read Amber's post and it was like very intriguing. I'm so naive. I'm a naive marketer in that way where I really do believe like people are doing right by their community. People are doing right by other people. And then when I hear this, I'm like, uh oh, this is not cool. But I do understand that there's even more pressure nowadays. Like I will give these people the fact that they are they are out there and they are trying to create. And especially right now on LinkedIn, LinkedIn is an untapped social platform and we don't really have many of those out there. And I get it. I mean, people are motivated. Like this is, yes, it is fantastic that you're going out and creating and LinkedIn is the place to be. People are there, they're engaged, they're listening. I just wish we could do something else or, or, or lean more into what Amber is doing, because that, that to me, again, is very real. It's very authentic. And it's like, it's putting others first, uh, versus like going back to the social me, the me, me, me. And 
everyone knows that I cannot stand that. Well, it gets back to what Andy alluded to before is the, the pressure for quick, hard and fast results, because you know that you may have a limited runway to like make an impact or to like to derive some kind of commercial success from what it is that you're doing. And again, I'm coming from a very different world where I'm playing a long game. And the long game for me is about a slow burn over a long period of time. And it also frees me up to sort of follow my whims and my passions when they arise. And it doesn't tie me into one particular path, which is something that's very important to me as an individual content creator. Different story when you're like beholden to a brand or you're trying to build a business. And I, again, I do understand where some of these things come from, but it doesn't take long to search around and read a little bit about the backlash and how people feel when they know that they've been kind of caught up in these like influencers that are gaming the system as much for like algorithmic reach as they are genuine connection for their community. And people end up feeling a little duped by that. They're just like, okay, well, I'm just a number for you. or I'm just a podcast download that you can monetize ads against or whatever. Like you don't actually care about me. And that's, that's just, again, that's not the aftertaste I want to leave with people. So that's what drives the way that I engage that may be different than others. So let's talk about some of your content, Amber. I'm going to work through just a few themes and different types of posts that you've done. And one that you hit on, very important in the marketing industries. You talk about imposter syndrome and kind of how you've dealt with it, but I think also relates again to who your user is. So if you kind of take us through some of those posts, you know, what you've worked on in your personal careers and maybe a way that you can bring that to the table and help the others who are listening. It's so funny because imposter syndrome came, I started writing and talking about it because I was drowning in it. Um, I had been on the backside of a failed business after several years that had cost me everything from friendships to my life savings. And then I immediately stepped out of that business into two professional roles where I went through layoffs one after the next. Um, and so I was steeped in this, like, what is wrong with me? And really wallowing in a lot of self-doubt. And my kind of tactic whenever I'm overwhelmed by something is to understand it very deeply. I guess it's like a cognitive thing. <laughs> but so I started trying to understand like, what is this feeling? And part of it was going to therapy and asking a lot of questions of my therapist. But I started digging and researching a little bit about what the origins of self-doubt. And imposter syndrome is not really a syndrome. It's a it's a phenomenon that was studied first in the 1970s by a couple of academic um researchers, two women who were in the academia world and in anecdotal conversations with their colleagues, we're learning a lot of women were saying, I don't belong here. How did I get here? Somebody's going to find out that I've been faking it the whole time. Um, eventually someone's going to call me out and I'm going to learn that I'm really just a fraud and I'm not really like none of my success is based on my own merits. It's just been luck, good timing, something like that. And I really resonated with a lot of those feelings. So I started talking about it and holy heck, like the flood of people who like, oh my God, just me too. Not just me. I'm not alone in this. So it was one of those spark moments where we talked about connection, where people just really resonated with a very personal experience that I was having. And so the more I talked about it, the more I wanted to understand it. And what's interesting is I've come a little bit full circle to realize that um, I kind of think imposter syndrome is a, a really big misnomer 
um, because it tends to land as a label on people who shouldn't be feeling those things in the first place. But it's also a very natural feeling for a lot of people to find themselves out of their depth at some point in their career. So reframing that as understanding that I'm just at the next level of growth, or I'm a little bit outside my comfort zone, or I'm tackling something that I don't have experience in today, but maybe I'll get experience in by walking through this process. So demystifying that a little bit and letting people cast off the label of imposter syndrome and realizing that this is a very universal human experience that we all have, um, takes the teeth out of it to some degree. And has helped me realize that there is a lot of community and belonging in recognizing our shared vulnerability and how most of us feel like we don't know what we're doing at any period in time. Um, and just sitting with that truth and finding people who are like, yeah, I feel clueless most days, very validating and healing so that you can realize we're all just out here doing the best we can, like trying to figure it out as we go. No one's got it knocked. Um, and imposter syndrome generally is something that's thrown out around a lot in marginalized groups. So recognizing that not everybody starts from the same place or has the same advantages or the same privileges, recognizing that you're not an imposter simply because you started with fewer advantages than somebody else, or because you had a lot more headwinds in your face to getting to where you are. That doesn't mean you're a fraud. That means you had a very different starting line. So exploring those topics has been very galvanizing for me and has been incredibly warming in the connections and the community that's built. What makes me so excited about this, Amber, is you're speaking to this at a leadership level. And that's what I found is something where I read your posts and I felt motivated reading these because I've had some experiences with imposter syndrome. I think, honestly, if you're in the social media game at all and you've done this for a while, I think we've all like touched on it, as you're saying, in different levels. But it's actually inspired me to talk about this kind of stuff more in my audience. Um, I feel like is a little bit different than most people on LinkedIn. My general community is I try to talk to social media managers that are probably early, mid, or trying to uh, elevate their career, like beyond social media, maybe move to larger marketing roles now. And the one thing that I've always hit on is I feel like a lot of the community doesn't know how to talk about any of these things because things are changing. It's go, go, go. Managers expect them to know everything. And, you know, clients expect, you know, I've said that, hey, we're learning this new trend. And a quote that I've gotten a lot from clients in my past is that, hey, you're the expert. And I'm like, we're the expert. And that was such a quote that was so damaging to my confidence every time I heard that. You know, I question, am I the expert? You know, do I need to like train up? Do I need to do 75 different, you know, LinkedIn learnings just to be like up to speed and be able to to talk with everybody and do these things? So big thank you for being able to talk about it, allowing us to see this through your lens, but also, you know, someone that is a creator or trying to get into that space. I think you build this comfort and, you know, kind of what I want to get on on our last point in terms of your content is you do talk about how you've gone through changes in your career. So you mentioned um, your business, you know, the business fell through, you got laid off, you know, now you're here today at LinkedIn. And then obviously, you know, we're in a, uh, a culture, you know, macroeconomics, everyone's favorite word where, you know, I think all of us get a little worried about layoffs. So 
Uh, I'm just curious, you know, how you've been able to deal with all the changes that have been in the marketing landscape. And then also, you know, what motivates you to write about it and be so open and sharing those? Uh, I'll take the last part first, which is what motivates me to be so open and sharing is I want to be the person that I needed when I was going through those things. I want to be the person who has the voice and is sharing their trials and tribulations, the messy middle, as I call it. So people don't feel so alone and like they have to hide how hard it is sometimes because you're not alone out there. It's just that people aren't always comfortable talking about the things that are a little bit messy or imperfect. Um, and I went through a huge period of my career where the prevail, if you're familiar with Brene Brown's work, like there was prevailing shame around things that I perceived to be failures, like my business, um, or things that I perceived to be personal reflections on like my character or capabilities, like layoffs. So I did do a lot of very interpersonal work, combating those feelings of shame and doing that you heal through community. So the way that I figured out how to work through that was finding other people who had gone through similar things. So we could share stories, swap experiences, you know, give each other a virtual hug and high five and be like, you got this. It's going to be okay. Um, and I also like, I fall back on the fact a lot that I have survived every single one of my worst days to date. I'm still here. I'm still kicking. I'm still ticking. And it has sort of allowed me the existential freedom to trust that I can handle whatever twist is coming in the plot. Um, so it, it gives me a little bit of resilience and it gives me a little bit of courage and bravery to know that the things that are coming are probably um, no harder than anything I've already dealt with and that I've managed to navigate those things okay so far and that I'm trusting my own instincts and abilities to navigate them again if they come up. So again, the reason I talk about it a lot is because I don't want other people out there thinking they're the only ones struggling, they're the only ones feeling afraid, they're the only ones who encounter doubt. Um, if I can be a part of sticking my neck out there to share those things so other people feel seen and less alone, um, then I think I've done something good and I'm leaving the world a little bit better than I found it. Amber, I, I'm so interested to hear more about your perspective around the fear of failing and, you know, you're talking about it as the shame that comes with it. And so tell me more, because I, I do believe that no matter what level you are, like what uh, success you've obtained, there's always that fear of failing, taking a risk. So what did you do to get yourself in that position where you could take the next risk after your business failed? <laughs> um, some of it was by necessity. I mean, I had to take a risk. Like I, I'm a single parent and I have a daughter and keeping like the roof over her head and the lights on and food on the table was a massive motivator for me. I couldn't fail her. So I had extrinsic motivation in the sense of I had a kid that I needed to care for and I needed to do whatever it was gonna take to make sure that I was meeting that responsibility. Um, part of the intrinsic motivation that came from that, um, I attribute in some ways to my parents who were very much kind of gritty, resilient humans themselves. And my dad used to say that like, the only, the only thing that's irreversible is death. 
everything else is negotiable. So like in the middle, when you're stumbling over stuff or going through hard things, like as long as I'm on this side of the dirt, everything can change or be better. And I've had to learn to take sometimes very micro steps forward. That might mean today I got up, I took a shower, I drank a glass of water. That feels like a success. On the hardest days, those are the successes that you count. And when you're feeling stronger and more resilient, then you can get a little bit more aspirational for your ideas of what success looks like. But failure is everywhere. And you look around at people that have tried and failed at a lot of hard things, professional athletes, you know, my daughter's a competitive equestrian, like failure is part of the journey, man. And you can't get better unless occasionally you fall flat on your face because it teaches you so, so much. My business failing taught me a lot about what I love and what I don't love um, in the world of work. Um, going through layoffs taught me a little bit about following my nose and my instincts when it came to my career. Two years ago, I jumped into this sales job after 20 plus years in marketing and put myself right back in the deep end of a pool and a learning curve that, you know, I... I, I even took a step backwards in terms of like titles and responsibility and all that kind of stuff so that I could pursue an area of growth and development that felt right for me at the time. So I think sometimes it's about redefining failure, but other times it's just about realizing that failure and success are dynamic and the definitions of those things change as your priorities change, as your life changes, as your personal and professional circumstances evolve. Um, and when you kind of normalize it that way, it feels a lot less like a big capital F failure. Oh my God, it's a brick wall I'm going to hit and I can't recover from. Um, you can recover from almost anything. So the more I've learned that, the more courage it's given me to be like, ah, what's the worst that can happen? Um, so as long as you have those kind of thoughtful conversations with yourself and you kind of develop your own risk and failure tolerance, um, I think you get better at it over time. I love that. I love the sports reference. Uh, we always talk about in baseball, one at bat at a time. You can be down seven runs, but you got to take one at bat at a time. And I say that, that's actually something I say in my head when I do marketing. I'm like, hey, one thing at a time. Like, what does this play up to? How does it work in the grand scheme of things? But uh, perfect, perfect analogy right there. Just how you bring it all together. I think it's, you know, the thing that I've learned from you today, Amber, is it's about finding what really drives you? And also, you know, I think you speak to a lot about, you know, loving the good qualities about yourself and being able to embrace that and see the good in things in the long game at work. You said a long game and macro a lot, which I love is something that we always pitch when we talk to clients, but we go on for hours. I know we're at time right now, Amber. So we will be following your content and seeing what you're putting out there. It's always exciting uh, to us and not only see the content, just see how many people are inspired by it. So keep doing what you do. We're always taking a look at it. We're inspired for our personal journeys and what we're trying to do with this podcast. So um, definitely follow Amber again, Amber Naslin, Senior Manager of Marketing Solutions at LinkedIn. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much for having me, you guys. I enjoyed it so much. Thanks, Amber. We love what you do. <laughs> so Jess, this was an awesome conversation in a new way that Amber framed things up for us. So I think that um, as we explore more of this journey for what we're trying to accomplish on LinkedIn, 
I think it's kind of just important to always remember that North Star she talks about and trying to build content that's right for her audience. And more specifically, I think right for her audience. So like as you and I teach thought leadership, we have different uh, clients and, and consultancy efforts that we're doing where we speak to this topic a lot. I think a lot of times we're trying to figure out like, hey, what is the right topic? What is trendy? Like, I think there's a way that maybe you can do a little bit of trendy, but do it right for your audience. But I think that's what Amber hits on the most right now is it has to be natural to what your voice is. Mm -hmm. And we've talked about this before. Be interested in your community versus interesting. Mm -hmm. And she just continued to highlight that. And it comes through on her content. Like it's loud and clear that she does really care about the other person, the other people that are behind the screen. Mm -hmm. And I feel like too, when you start writing, this is the hardest part I, f I feel right here is when you start writing content to write good content versus trying to get a certain amount of engagements, likes, whatever it might be, you start finding that voice and, and kind of strategy a little bit easier where I feel like if you're trying to like force it all the time, it becomes harder and harder to do. So that's something that I, I feel like we advise a lot. Like that's the big Gary V talk track, uh, you know, who we mentioned a lot on the show is just write good content. But I feel like, and this kind of relates back to Amber's imposter syndrome, what she's talking about. Let's say you do that for 15 posts and only like two of them hit and the thir 13 of them get like one like, then I think people just shut it down. And I feel like it's such a long game and consistent effort that there's probably people out there that could see your content that never engage with it. You're just slowly building that following up. So I feel like that consistency and authenticity is so important to the long game. And also a game that we have to remind ourselves on LinkedIn, if you're getting into this, it's pretty new. Like what it takes to be like a creator that lasts five to 10 years on LinkedIn, nobody knows really what that is yet. Like there, it hasn't been a situation like YouTube where there are influencers that have been around for 10, 15 years. So I think there's still an opportunity just to throw some darts at the wall and figure out how to craft your authenticity and voice on the platform. Yeah, being real. Amber reminds me of an actor in which we would go to that actor and know that, wow, they are so true to themselves. Like this is the real deal. You are getting what you paid for with this person. And I love that. I love, and I think that's why people are so drawn to her and to her voice is because people want real. And it's, it's so easy to be fake, especially in the professional setting. And especially when you're focused on like, oh, how am I, how am I playing the corporate game? How am I, you know, moving up the ladder? How am I building this audience or, or reaching more people? And it's just, it's refreshing to, to find someone that is really focused on the relationship and the relationship building versus the network. Like I hate the term networking. 
networking. Other- it's like, it's, it's, it's nasty. Like get that term out of your out of system. Yeah. You know, the funny thing about that, just building like good relationships, that's helped me so much in my career too. Like we're talking about like networking being a strategy. Honestly, a lot of the relationships I've built just from, you know, connections on LinkedIn, people have met at conferences, uh, saying yes to random conversations that I thought were interesting professionally. They have actually added up to quite a bit. If I were just to go through how my career's evolved, a lot of it's been through just random connections on LinkedIn and not in like the weird way, but like you're in the same communities commenting on the same stuff type of way. And it's helped build, you know, what I've been able to do today. It's kind of expanded my perspective on how I consult different clients. So it's interesting to see what LinkedIn has become in this sphere. And we really relate this back to authenticity and the eras that we talk about of social media, where I think we're in this this era of where that's what people really, really not only want, but I feel like that's what they demand on social at this point. There's a reason why, you know, jumping kind of gears here, why e-commerce is doing so well on TikTok right now. It's because brands can't do their TV commercials the same anymore. They have to do something very organic and grassroots. And, you know, people really gravitate towards that. We look at creators on LinkedIn, you know, the Gary V's of the world do really, really well on it. Nothing's highly produced. So I, I think there's an aspect to that where people are tired of being sold to. And you could take that through every lens. It's not like a Gen Z thing. It's not a B2C thing. It's just, it's an everybody thing for every market. That authenticity really carries through. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the Blair Witch pro- Project style video shooting works on LinkedIn. It's yes. super engaging. And again, it, it's it's real and authentic. I don't, how many times are we going to use the word authentic in this episode? It, it should be a, like, let's drink our, our, our beverage of choice. So would you support one of my um, other like dreams? It's like doing a found footage style horror movie and sure. trying to capitalize on, on this authenticity. Yeah. Maybe if we tone it down a little. Andy, you know that I can't watch any horror movies. I get scared very easily. I'm much more into like the romantic comedy. Like you always watch comedies. That's how our household operates. But, uh, you know, reading the Britney Spears book, that that was going a little off the edge for me. So... Uh, yeah, if we if we tone, I, I I'm open. I'm open to testing things. Of course, I would love to do a mar some like sort of marketing research podcast or like history lesson on the Blair Witch Project and how they made it a found footage because it it wasn't found footage. It was like teen no not teenagers like 20 somethings with handheld cameras running through the woods and they made it really scary because it felt real and pretended it was real you know like going through some of the history of that i i just find that topic so fascinating because we see it in social media again like these eras that we go through but the realness thing has been popular in entertainment for a long time from horror movies, the reality TV to, you know, wanting to be in touch with an an, uh, an artist such as Britney Spears or feeling relatable to an artist now such as Taylor Swift. So it carries over in this interesting format that I think is always just 
fun to look back on and kind of, you know, retrain our brains that this isn't super new. So you just blew my mind again, Andy. I, I've never seen the Blair Witch Project. I thought it was real. No. Like, I thought it was real footage. None of them are real. So in the horror movie world, the Blair Witch Project's (laughs) not real, but they marketed it as real. So a lot of people thought it was. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is not real. Like, none of them are actually real. But they're based maybe loosely on real events at certain points. Okay, yeah. I, I didn't think, like, Texas Chainsaw Massacre, like, those type of horror movies are real, but I don't know, for some reason, I thought this was, like, footage that they found no. in the woods. <laughs> okay. It's found found footage that they created themselves <laughs> with camcorders, but hey, we can all do the same thing right now with, like, iPhone, you know, what is it, 15s or whatever it's out now. So they duped us. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so marketing 101. It, was, it, it wasn't authentic. <laughs> And that it was real, but it was authentic into how a horror movie would feel if you were in one. So it did have that aspect. One other thing I'll bring up about Amber that I really want to double click on, because we know we're talking about authenticity. Like when we think about leaders today, and another reason why I think people gravitate towards Amber and why her message really resonates is because, again, when you're getting that realness, like that realness of and compassion like people want to approach amber they want to they want to go up to her and they want to learn from her and they want to like discover from her and i think that is such an important leadership quality like especially like when you're thinking about you know the the c suite and like leaders at a higher level like if you can go up to them and you feel comfortable and you can approach them like that's when you know that you're 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 dealing with a very solid human being and And that's a statistic that amber may never know how many of those posts of her being relatable towards the people that she manages does that help them want to come to her and you know be comfortable talking about these different topics you know it's it's something that I think is pretty nuanced in today's era, but just having that opportunity to know that your leader is thinking of these things is huge because that, in my opinion, you know, the the community that I like to talk to a lot when it comes to social media managers, I can tell you the number one reason that they leave the positions they're in is they feel that leadership can't even have a conversation with them about what they do. But here's the thing. Maybe leadership can, and maybe it just no one's kicking the tires on communication. What Amber is doing is it's allowing, you know, people to see that, hey, this is someone where there's an opportunity for that. And she wants to grow the community that she's engaged with. Mm-hmm. And she wants to grow her people. Yes. That actually is, a, that would be a good test to see how many of her teammates or her direct reports stay on the team if they weren't making their quota yes like in that sales capacity and like i mean that's that's the real deal right there now from an organizational standpoint or company standpoint they may need to shift things up because you got to make quota that's number one in sales but that'd be really really revealing to see it would be fascinating because 
part of the game, an agency game, is you are taught to stay ahead. So if the agency just lost their top client, the game is you run. <laughs> you start applying for jobs like yesterday. If the agency says the words merger, buyout, uh, anything to that effect, you run because they're going to bring in different types of people, offer different services. Things are going to get better before they get worse. So like these things, like company things, like they see a sign and then they jump. Now, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that because that's everybody's personal career. But as a leader, if it's something like keep your talent and grow your talent, you know, what is your message and how you handle things through those downtimes? Like, I think changes what, you know, your employees might do. Obviously, there's other factors that, you know, could go above them and how companies are handling layoffs, staffing, all of that. But at the very least, I think you give them that hope that they can make an impact where they're at right now. Or if it's not where they're at right now, you at least make their time a little bit more satisfactory to watch them grow in their career. And mm -hmm. those to me are the best leaders that want you to grow in your career, no matter where that might be. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I was also thinking too, Amber would be the most incredible type of leader to motivate and empower her people to like post more, to share their story, to it's like, we've talked about this as one of our like 2024 predictions and how the employees really need to step up and employers need to highlight the the individual brands because it makes the collective brand and it's mm -hmm. it's going to be a win-win for everyone so i i could absolutely see amber like leading the charge and and encouraging her team and then seeing the sales results as yep. as a result of like building the relationships and the trust and the the realness through social media and how customers then respond to the brand. But the only way sometimes to do this truly is you have to believe that it works because while there are new metrics and ways we can connect things and ensure there are, but sometimes you just have to believe that the company philosophy, the things we're doing at the end of the day, it all could be a collective effort to lead towards that growth. I think what stops people from their authenticity are things like last click attribution, needing a lot of leads. And then like people, they feel like them putting out their voice and speaking in this manner, they feel like it has no importance in the grand scheme of things. So it has to be something that's fostered within the organization that it can help. Or, you know, I'll go to kind of like my talk track, what ends up happening is people will just go kind of bounty hunter on social media and they're just going to like do things for the community and see what happens. So, you know, I'm not saying any approach is wrong, but it's just kind of like if you're, you want to foster this, it can't be through this kind of like weird, you know, last click attribution is the only thing that matters lens. Mm -hmm. But I know just we're at times, so this was a great conversation. I almost think like we're workshopping this a little bit right now because I think you and I, you know, we did do LinkedIn posts before this podcast, but not like we're doing now. So we've really 
tried to bolster who we are and, you know, our position in the industry and kind of starting those conversations. So I think that these types of topics are always very empowering to me and to our audience will be, you know, very interesting as, as they start to dabble in it too, as LinkedIn grows. Yes. And now I've learned too, that I'm doing what Amber's doing as far as just like writing about like what I feel in the moment. Yes. Good practices to have. Again, give Amber a follow on LinkedIn. We hope you have a happy Super Bowl Sunday and we'll be back again soon. Bye. Goodbye, everyone. This podcast is heard along the Marketing Podcast Network. For more great marketing podcasts, visit marketingpodcasts.net.